This is the LexisNexis Emerging Issues Law Center podcast. Discussions and interviews with leading attorneys and industry professionals. On this edition, Professor Arthur D. Hellman of the University of Pittsburgh School of Law on the nomination of Judge Sonia Sotomayor to the Supreme Court. LexisNexis Podcasts, voted top legal-oriented podcast in the 2008 ABA Journal Blog 100, the annual reader survey of the best websites for lawyers as chosen by the editors of the ABA Journal. The opinions expressed by guests interviewed on LexisNexis Legal Podcasts do not necessarily reflect those of Reed Elsevier Incorporated, LexisNexis, subsidiary companies, shareholders, employees, or customers, and should not be considered legal advice. Arthur D. Hellman is Professor of Law, Sally Ann Semenko Endowed Chair, at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. Professor Hellman has achieved a national reputation as a scholar of the federal courts. He's one of the leading academic commentators on issues of federal judicial ethics, and his unique series of empirical studies on the operation of precedent in the U.S. Supreme Court and the Courts of Appeals has been used as a basis for policy decisions at both the federal and state levels. Over the years, Professor Hellman has testified as an invited witness at numerous hearings of the Judiciary Committees in both the House and the Senate. He received public recognition from leading members of the House Judiciary Committee for his work in helping to draft the Judicial Improvements Act of 2002. Professor Hellman's publications include numerous articles and several books, including two casebooks, the second edition of one, Federal Courts, Cases, and Materials on Judicial Federalism and the Lawyering Process, has recently been published. Professor Hellman, thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. The Senate Judiciary Committee has set July 13th for the start of confirmation hearings on Judge Sonia Sotomayor's nomination to be Associate Justice of the Supreme Court. First, Professor Hellman, what are your thoughts on this timetable with the president urging the Senate to vote on confirming Judge Sotomayor before it leaves for recess in August, but Republicans saying more time is needed to consider the nomination? Well, that's certainly a plausible position. I mean, she has been a judge for many years. If you look at the documents that are posted on the Senate Judiciary website, it's a huge collection, speech after speech and many, many decisions. And even that's not really all that you'd want to look at for some of the decisions. For example, you would want to look at some of the the briefs and other documents. So it's a huge amount of material to examine. On the other hand, the likelihood that any of that additional material would change anybody's vote is is really pretty small. So we're talking to some degree about posturing here. Ideally, it would be good to have more time to, to look at it. There's just been an additional factor, though, that has come into the uh, situation, which is the Supreme Court's ordering re-argument in the campaign finance case on September 9th, I think it is. And that, I think, has put a little more pressure on the uh, Republicans to go along with this schedule because there's certainly value in having a new justice on board for that oral argument. Can you discuss her background a little bit and why you think Judge Sotomayor was selected by President Obama? Well, you know, one of the most interesting things about this is the parallel to the nomination of Clarence Thomas by the first President Bush almost 20 years ago. At that time, I think the president said he is the most qualified person for the position, which many people found incredible. 
and e even ridiculous. But it did make some sense if you factored into qualification the fact that the president was looking for a black person to succeed Thurgood Marshall, and he also wanted somebody who was conservative in a jurisprudential sense. And there were very, very few such people around. And of those people, Clarence Thomas was almost certainly the best qualified. So here we have the first nomination by the new president. And it's very clear from the start that he wanted to appoint a woman. Obviously, he wanted to some, appoint somebody who would be liberal in a jurisprudential perspective. And it turned out that he gave heavy weight to appointing somebody of Hispanic background. And when you put all three of those together, once again, as with the Clarence Thomas nomination, there aren't a lot of candidates, and she came to the surface uh, quite easily and obviously. Do you see any specific issues being raised that could be roadblocks or potential difficulties in Judge Sotomayor's confirmation? I don't think any of the issues are going to be genuine roadblocks in the sense that they would block her nomination. And it seems to me there are only two things that could stop her at this point. One is that there's something in her background that we don't know about yet. And she has been vetted pretty thoroughly, not just by the political branches, but by the media. Almost everything is available online somewhere these days. So it seems very unlikely to me that there's some hidden secret or some terrible decision she made 10 or 15 years ago that, that is going to, to block her. The other possibility, which we don't know about yet, is that she says something in response to a question that is just so off-putting to so many people that it really puts a roadblock in, in the nomination. I think that is almost as unlikely as, as finding some skeleton in the closet. I mean, she's been a public figure for many years. I think the Republicans, as well as the Democrats, will treat her pretty respectfully as a witness. And it just seems to me very, very unlikely that she's going to blurt out something that will destroy her candidacy. And if neither of those things happens, then you have a very solid Democratic majority in the Senate, and she will be confirmed. And so, to a large extent, the, the hearings are something that we all have to go through. They, on a more positive side, they can serve something of an educational purpose. That often doesn't come about the way one would hope, because the senators are so concerned with posturing and speechifying and getting their own airtime that they really don't leave much time for genuine questions that receive genuine answers. On June 29th, the Supreme Court decided the reverse discrimination case out of Connecticut, overturning the Second Circuit panel, of which Judge Sotomayor was a part. What impact do you think that decision may have on the hearings? That case is going to be a centerpiece of many questions, particularly from the Republican side, I think. And there are really two aspects of it that are going to be discussed. One is the case itself. Uh, should these white firemen have gotten the relief or remedy that they sought? But the other aspect of it that troubles a lot of people is the way the Second Circuit panel, with Judge Sotomayor as a member, handled the case. The case was argued, I think, for about an hour, which is quite unusual. That's a lengthy oral argument time. It was a huge record. It was obviously an important case, a very lengthy district court opinion. 
And yet the Second Circuit panel decided it initially by a one-paragraph unpublished order, and that was very troubling. The case came up for in-bank reconsideration. There were some angry dissents, rehearing denied by seven to six, I think it was. But the panel still didn't write an opinion. The panel published a, I think, a one-paragraph statement appended the district court opinion, but really didn't address the issues. And I think there will be questions, why did you think it appropriate to proceed in that way with this important case? But again, I, I think from the perspective of ultimate confirmation, that's a kind of inside baseball question, and you can't make a sound bite out of it. What are some of the other questions you would like to see asked? I, I would certainly like to see them ask about the, uh, the now famous or infamous uh, wise Latina comment. And let me just read it, because I think it's important if I can find it here in this collection of speeches. You know, it's interesting that at one point the White House was saying, well, this was an unscripted remark. And it turns out that it's anything but unscripted. She, in fact, said almost the same thing in several different speeches a few years ago. And by the way, one of the sort of interesting things is that she doesn't seem to have repeated this in the last more than 10 years. But here's one of the versions of it. I would hope that a wise Latina woman with the richness of her experiences would more often than not reach a better conclusion. And she seems to mean a better conclusion than somebody who isn't a Latina woman. One of the very odd things about that, by the way, is that uh, she talks about the richness of her experiences, and yet being a woman and being of Hispanic background aren't really experiences, are they? They're characteristics that, that somebody's born with. But there are many, many que other questions about that. What, what did she mean? How does somebody's background turn that person into a better decision maker? And does she still adhere to that, having apparently not made that comment for some years now? So I think there'll be a good deal of exploration of that, but I'm confident it will be respectful. I don't think the, the Republicans want to be seen as badgering the nominee, and I don't think they will. As a senator, President Obama voted against the confirmation of both Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Alito. What role might or should his comments play in the confirmation debate on Judge Sotomayor? Well, it seems to me that it would be perfectly legitimate for the Republicans to invoke those comments and to say what was good enough for the president when he was a senator is good enough for them today as sitting senators. Because uh, he made very clear that he, he had no problems with their qualifications. He acknowledged they were highly qualified. He acknowledged they were persons of integrity, but said basically, I think they're if confirmed they will be deciding cases in a way that I think is bad for the country. And I can see no reason why the Republicans should not apply the, the same standard today. Concede qualifications, concede integrity, but say, based on the standard that the president himself applied only a few years ago, that uh, I will vote against this nomination because I don't like the kind of decisions she has made as a circuit judge, and I fear that as a Supreme Court justice not bound by Supreme Court precedent, the decisions will be even more harmful to the country. Now, they may not do that, and 
they may decide, in fact, that her decisions aren't all that terrible. There are not many that have uh, garnered extensive criticism at that point. But they would certainly, Republicans would certainly be justified in adopting the standard that the president himself applied as a senator. You mentioned the media a few minutes ago and the fact that so much information is so widely and readily available. What impact, if any, do you see the media having in the hearings and the confirmation process? Well, I think there are two separate things there. One that you mentioned is the availability of all this material now to everybody. And that's something, of course, that uh, 20 years ago, for example, at, at the time of the Thomas hearings, we just didn't have. And it's not clear. It's different today even from what it was at the time of the of the Roberts and Alito nominations. I think stuff gets on faster. It's more easily accessible. You can find the stuff. And you have all of these blogs and commentaries that discuss what's in this material, what it signifies, and that then feeds to some degree into the, into, in, into the media. But whether that will have an effect on the decision of individual senators, I think, is, is a very different question. But again, this is, this is a political process, and unless they feel that there's some real political downside in voting yes, the Democratic senators certainly will. And I would expect the same if the positions were reversed. Do you think it's possible we might see another vacancy on the high court during President Obama's first term? And if a vacancy arises, who are some of the possible candidates? Almost certainly there will be. I mean, I think it's highly likely that either Justice Stevens or Justice Ginsburg or both will retire within the next two or three years. Uh, if I had to guess, I would say perhaps more likely Justice Ginsburg, Justice Stevens seems to be determined to go on forever if, if he can. I, I think we probably see consideration of many of the same people. One of the very interesting questions would be whether with two women on the court, the president would then feel he can consider men as well as women. Another question is whether he would see it as important to get somebody who is plainly pretty committed to the liberal perspective, and I use that in the usual imprecise, but I think generally understood sense. Because one of the things that struck me is that there are a couple of judges, women judges, on the Ninth Circuit out on the West Coast, Judge Graber from Oregon and Judge McEwen, who was from Washington State, but now is a chambers in, in San Diego. They're both highly respected judges with outstanding credentials and both pretty good writers. And yet, as far as I know, they were not considered at all. And I think the reason probably is that they would be characterized as moderate liberals. So the real question will be when, when the next vacancy occurs, and I, I do think it's when rather than if, uh, whether the president will expand his criteria either by including men and women or by considering judges or other candidates who are more moderate than the people who are on the list this time. Professor Hellman, let me uh, bring up your book for a moment, Federal Courts, Cases and Materials on Judicial Federalism and the Lawyering Process. The second edition has just been published and will be ready for classes this fall. How is this latest edition different from the first? 
Well, it's mainly different in that it takes account, of course, of all the recent Supreme Court developments and some legislation. We've also learned a few things from using the book. There were one or two experiments that uh, didn't quite work out. By the way, one of the uh, things about the book that actually makes it directly relevant to this conversation is that we're actually one of the few uh, federal courts case books that has a section on how federal judges are appointed and how state judges are selected, which is mostly through popular election. And of course, lawyers care very much who the judges are, as is evident in all the debate over the sort of mayor nomination. So this happens to be a, a pretty good book for someone who sees that aspect of uh, federal litigation as as important as the doctrines and statutes and rules. Are there any particular issues in the book that have arisen in the past several years that could be viewed as emerging trends or hot-button issues? Well, there are a couple of the issues that are not going to go away. Uh, one of them certainly is the, the rights of detainees, and we do have uh, some material on that. It's something the court is very, very interested in, and it's particularly interesting because there is the dialogue or trialogue among the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the courts. And one of the big questions is how large or important a role should the courts be playing in deciding those questions. And that's the kind of question really that comes up in, in a lot of other contexts as well. It comes up with environmental law. It comes up with the role of the federal courts as contrasted with state courts in uh, enforcing the Constitution against state officials. So these these questions have been with us for a long time. They take new forms. They come up in new contexts. And that's one of the things that makes writing a casebook uh, an intellectually challenging task. Any final thoughts, Professor Hellman? I guess I'd go back to a little what we were talking about before at, at the hearings. It would really be wonderful if at least a few of the senators could t- use let's say, only two minutes of their five to talk and to use the rest to really engage in a conversation with Judge Sotomayor about what the Constitution means, how you apply it to novel situations, and these other terribly difficult questions. Because this will be one of the few occasions when the general public will be looking in just a little bit on these debates And it's terribly important that people understand that these are not easy issues, that men and women of goodwill and training can disagree about them. Uh, But I I think people are capable of of understanding what's at stake and and something of the the nature of the issues. And and televised hearings can play an important role in, in educating the public about this very important aspect of our governmental system. Professor Hellman, I'd like to thank you for your time and uh, willingness to share your views on these issues, and I look forward to speaking with you in the future. Thank you very much for participating in this LexisNexis podcast. Well, thank you very much, and I really appreciate the, uh, the opportunity to participate in this. Professor Arthur D. Hellman of the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. This has been the LexisNexis Emerging Issues Law Center podcast. Visit the Emerging Issues Law Center and all our communities at www.lexisnexus.com communities. The LexisNexus Emerging Issues Law Center podcast. Copyright 2009 by LexisNexus, a division of Reed Elsevier Incorporated. LexisNexus.
Total Practice Solutions. This is Steve Bursler. Thank you for listening.